0: Let's open the Word of God, please, to Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament. And yeah, Isaiah is in the Old Testament, as you know. Don't be afraid to use the table of contents if you need to to find Isaiah. But the, the books in the Old Testament are written before the first coming of Christ, Caitlin. So they're anticipating the coming of Christ. They emphasize the fact that all human beings are sinners. We break God's standards and we're all mortal. We're all, we all die physically, but the overall arching promise of the Old Testament is that God will send a Savior, and we're going to look at one of the most important promises about the Savior that you find in the entire Old Testament today. So yeah, Isaiah is one of the major prophets located uh, after the wisdom literature there, and if you're using that particular version of the Ryrie Study Bible, you will find it on page 1012. But you're going to have to turn back to chapter 53. Now, last Sunday, we were between 1 Peter and 2 Peter in our studies, so we're doing some standalone studies. We looked at the rapture of the church, and we said that the rapture of the church is an imminent event. It could happen at any moment, but it might not happen for another thousand years. It will initiate the end times and lead seven years later to the second advent of Christ. And we looked at New Testament passages that predicted that future event has not happened yet. Um, And so when we think of Bible prophecy, Trey, I think most of us think of stuff about the future and the end times. We think about the rapture, the second advent, the millennium. That's Bible prophecy. But today we're going to look at a Bible prophecy, which is in many ways just as exciting, or even more so, But it's a different kind of prophecy than thinking about the rapture. It's a prophecy made in the Old Testament that was fulfilled about 700 years, Natalie, after Isaiah wrote this, but that fulfillment was 2000 years ago to us. So this is a different type of Bible prophecy. It's Old Testament prophecy that has been fulfilled, but, uh, it's something that I think confirms the, uh, Reliability of Bible prophecy concerning the future and also emphasizes that generally speaking, Bible prophecy is fulfilled literally. Sometimes metaphors are used, but the prophecy we're going to see in Isaiah 53, which is clearly fulfilled by Jesus Christ, was all fulfilled literally. And so we can expect that the promises about the rapture and the tribulation and the second advent and the millennium will all be filled, fulfilled literally when they happen. And we're going to look at a passage this morning that uh, is in Isaiah 53, and really when we say Isaiah 53, we mean Isaiah 53 in the first, or the the last three verses of the previous chapter. That's what people mean by Isaiah 53 in that context. And here we are living, uh, sitting in TBF 2017. So we're looking back at a prophecy made in about 680 BC by Isaiah, fulfilled in the life of Christ. And that was all wonderful things that happened 2,000 years ago. But it tells us about the power of prophecy, and I call this the Hope Diamond of Bible Prophecy, and I think uh, it's a very, very important passage to know, appreciate, reflect on, and to share. But before we dive into our study, let's uh, pray for teachability and also for our peace officers and our firefighters and our active military. And uh, Steve, if you would, lead us in, in prayer, okay? Amen. Amen. Yeah, Isaiah 53, this is one of my favorite passages in the entire scripture, but uh, just in case you're not fully warmed up and ready for abstract thinking, let's look at top three reasons James Mitchell is a world-class youth minister. There are many, but these are the top three. He has the uncanny ability to tap dance, play the accordion, order pizza, and teach the Bible all at the same time, and you must be able to do this to be a great youth minister. Can I hear an amen on that? He can relate to middle school students and high school students without having his nose, his ears, or his navel pierced. And most people can't do that. He'll tell you. And the number one reason James is a world-class youth minister is he's one of the few people in the world who could possibly minister in the shadow of my overpowering personal charisma. Okay, when we say Isaiah fifty-three, we really mean Isaiah fifty-two thirteen through Isaiah fifty-three twelve. It's kind of like when people talk about the so-called conflict between Genesis one and Genesis two; they really mean the so-called conflict between Genesis one one through two three, which is a survey of Creation Week, and then two four through two twenty-five, which is an analysis of the most important day. They don't contradict, the complement. So just be aware, inside scoop, when people talk about the prophecy of Isaiah 53, they really mean the last couple of verses of 52 and all of 53. And I want you to notice the structure here. You've got kind of a, a top bun and a bottom bun and the meat in the middle. There's the top bun. The top bun's actually verses 13, 14, and 15 of the previous chapter, and then the bottom bun's the last verse of chapter 53. And they They emphasize the same basic theme, only slightly different. The very first thing we're told in this incredible prophecy about the coming suffering Messiah is that the Savior, uh, the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, will ultimately be exalted supremely. That is going to happen, Kay, but only after he suffers unique the ultimate unique humiliation, thinking about the crucifixion and his substitutionary atoning sacrifice. That's the top bun. So he establishes that at the very beginning before he gets into the details, the meat in the middle part. And then the bottom bun, Kirk, is kind of parallel to that. It says that the Savior, the Savior, the Messiah, the, the uh, servant of Yahweh, will ultimately be exalted supremely, but only after he's resurrected from the dead. So this Messiah, is going to be like a lamb, Is going to die for the sins of the world, but he's going to be resurrected, and he will ultimately be supremely exalted. Okay? So let's look at, I guess, the first top of the bun. Yeah, that's what I want to look at. Look at verse 13 through 15. Behold, at the beginning of this discourse on the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, behold, my servant, God the Father is being quoted here, in an oracle statement, Yahweh, the Lord's servant, his ultimate servants, uh, Isaiah 42, 49, 50, 53, talk about this messianic savior servant. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high, lifted up, and greatly exalted. He will enjoy the superlative exaltation uh, of all of history. That's going to happen. But first, just as many... We're astonished at the sufferings Israel suffered, starting with the Egyptian bondage, uh, etc., the Assyrian invasion, ultimately the Babylonian disintegration, etc. As many had been astonished at uh God's people, Israel, suffering greatly, so his appearance was. Notice that's past tense. Once we get rolling in this, Anthony, we have past tense. But this is called a prophetic past in which someone who's talking about something that will happen in the future is stating it as if it's already happened because it's so certain to be fulfilled. Trust me, everybody, underst- the, the most radical skeptic will say, yeah, Isaiah is talking about something future here, even though he's using that past tense. It's the prophetic past tense. But middle of verse 14, uh, in the same way and even more radically, that people have been astonished by all the suffering the people of Israel, the Jews, have had to face. So, in a similar way, but much more extreme, his appearance would be marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. But based on his suffering, thus, based on his suffering, he will sprinkle many nations. His blood will uh, save those who rest in him. And kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they'll see. Way beyond the ability of human words to describe the superlative suffering and reigning of the Messiah, we will experience. And so uh, God speaks to us truly in his word, but not completely, not comprehensively, because we can't contain it all, and even human words can't contain it. But ultimately, this servant who's going to suffer worse than anyone will be Seen in awe by many kings, by many uh, rulers and uh, rich and wealthy and influential people. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see and what they had not heard they'll understand. Let's go back and emphasize a few things. Right at the beginning of this passage that the meat in the middle is going to talk about the amazing sufferings of the Messiah in his first advent, we're told that when the purposes are finished for the Messiah in God's plan. He will prosper, not just prosper. He will be supremely exalted. He'll be high, lifted up, greatly exalted, and yet he's going to go through great suffering. Look at verse 15. But based on his suffering, he'll sprinkle the nations. To sprinkle there is not talking about the way uh, some groups baptize babies. It's talking about the application of, An appropriation of sacrificial blood under the Old Covenant. Uh, The Old Covenant is the way God set up Israel to be a nation that would draw the people to the true God. And when you look at the Old Testament law, and we're told Christ is the end of the law for all who believe on this side of the cross, it's got three three aspects. It's got a ceremonial aspect, including sacrificial animals. It's got civil and criminal laws that don't apply to Oklahomans. We're under U.S. federal and Oklahoma state law. But it also has moral laws. Thou shalt not murder did not become wrong when Moses came off of Sinai. That was always wrong. It's always immoral because it's based on the character of God. And so when we say Christ is the end of the law, the entire package as a package doesn't apply to K. Massey. But the moral stipulations of the Old Testament law are gnomic. They're timeless, and so they transcend that. But he's using an Old Testament metaphor because he's living in the Old Testament, and he's aware of some of the sacrifices that involve priests sprinkling uh, with sacrificial blood. So he's talking about, based on the superlative suffering of the Messiah, the Savior, that will be the basis in which God will be able to cleanse them uh, appropriate, or, or I should say propitiate their sins. So that's the top bun, and it kind of gets us started, assuring us of the success, ultimately the servant, but also telling us that he's going to suffer intently. Now let's see the details found in the meat in the middle, and we're going to have four unbelievable truths about the Savior in these four portions in the middle part between the top bun and the bottom bun, as it were. And the first uh unit here, verses 1 through 3, of chapter 53 proper of Isaiah 53, tells us the Savior will suffer unbelievable disrespect and rejection by most people, by the vast majority of people. Uh, it's, it's one thing for people to uh, uh, treat us like non-entities, but when they just reject us, it hurts. You know, I remember getting out of Dallas Seminary, and I was so naive. I thought, man, I love the Lord so much, and I love the Bible so much, and I want to teach it clearly with an overhead projector and draw circles and lines so everybody can understand it because I love it so much, everybody who loves the Lord will love me. This is all all we have to do, you know, is just uh, find a building, and, and everybody will try to find me because I love the Lord so much. And I still love the Lord probably more now, uh, although like I heard somebody say recently, you know, I just turned 64, and I think when I was 28, graduated from Dallas Seminary, I thought by the time I got to be 64, I'd be a lot better Christian than I am, uh, but I just thought that would happen, but uh, uh, it doesn't necessarily work that way, and yet what is the symbol of Christianity? If you don't know, look back at, over David's head. It's a cross, and we add the arrow for the resurrection, but what is the cross? You know, It's a cross, not a couch, you know. (laughs) We don't sit on a couch and have people bow down to us. This is not the point of the religion, you know. Uh, we've got a savior who's crucified so that Anthony could go to heaven. Now he's going to be high and lifted up, but, uh, it's a tough slog to get there. So he says in the first part of the meat of the middle here, who has believed our message? That's a rhetorical question, uh, that would have you say, you know, most people, most of the cool people don't believe this stuff then or now. Most of the elites do not believe this stuff then or now. And yet, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? To everybody, not just to those who believe. Can't help but think about a lot of New Testament passages as we go through this one. Look at John, Gospel of John, chapter 1. And you know, if we had like a month to do this, and maybe we'll do this someday. You could you could just connect almost everything that's said in Isaiah fifty three to multiple New Testament statements. I mean the data points just pile up. It's really quite remarkable. But uh, yeah, look at John one verse ten. And remember he says, uh, who has believed our message? A lot of people haven't believed our message. That's the force, the rhetorical question. Even though he's revealed himself to everyone, and he's he's the savior of all who will trust in him, regardless of color, country, or culture. But uh, John may have had that thought ringing in his ear in part when he says, and he writes about Jesus in John, Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 10. Jesus was in the world. He, the one Isaiah 53 is talking about, was in the world. And the world was made through him. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God the Father. The Word was a deity himself. He's in the beginning, all things came into being by him, etc. Verse 10 He was in the world. That's who Jesus is. And the world had been made through him, and the world did not know him. Sounds like, who's received the message? Not a lot. Uh, You know, there's there's a theory about the rapture that, it's called the partial rapture theory. I didn't go into it last week, but that's the theory that only spiritual Christians will be raptured at the rapture. All of us carnal folks will be left behind. And about 9.40 this morning, I thought, maybe the partial rapture happened, and they left me behind, but, uh, it's a little scary, but, uh, yeah, So you get back to, to John. Jesus, the, cre- the creator, and the supreme servant of Yahweh, the Savior's in the world, and He created the world, but most of the world could care less. Uh, but forget about the Gentiles. He came into His own. He came on, uh, primarily for the, uh, you know, in Jewish territory, initially, especially for them, and those who were his own did not receive him. There are many individual exceptions, but Tammy, generally, the vast majority of Jews didn't accept him. But, to all the exceptions, as many as received him, them he gave the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. So go back to Isaiah 53. Uh, most people won't buy this, or they'll change it, or they'll uh, water it down. Kayla's going to go to the Middle East, and the Arabs, they believe in Jesus. They totally believe in Jesus, except... They think he's the greatest Muslim prophet of all time. His name is Isa in uh, Arabic, you know. Uh, Isa is the greatest Muslim prophet of all time, except for one other prophet. So that's pretty high. That's pretty high on the depth chart there. The, the ultimate prophet is Muhammad, and really Jesus was all about preparing the way for Muhammad, but it's those dirty Christians that changed it in the New Testament, so you won't read it in there. So uh, most people won't buy this, or they'll distort it or change it, or they'll say that he's a great prophet, but nothing more, even though he's come for for all. Verse 2, For he, that is the uh, Savior, the Messianic servant, grew up before him, God the Father, as a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. Boy, when you go to the Middle East, you see a lot of parched ground, don't you? Uh, he, the Savior, who's going to come, will have no stately form or majesty that we would look upon him and be impressed, or he would stand out, nor appearance that he should that we should be attracted to him. I mean, all the Sunday school material you've looked at your whole life; those aren't photog- about Jesus. Those aren't photographs. Those are artist representations. He wasn't Caucasian. He didn't have blue eyes. He would have been an average-looking Palestinian Jew. And when he walked in a room, before he started talking, you would not take any special notice to him whatsoever. That's what the passage says. So many years ago when The Passion of the Christ came out, which I thought was an excellent film, the one thing that was bad about it was Jesus wasn't that handsome before they started beating him up. You know, they should have got somebody like me to play that part because you've got to look like an average Joe Ordinary. Nobody really notices you much. He had no stately form. We wouldn't notice him. And he's just average in his appearance. Okay, we're in a culture that obsesses over appearance. But uh if you do that you're gonna miss Jesus. Verse three, he was despised and forsaken of men. Not every single one, not Peter, James, and John, but the vast majority of the Jewish elites and the Roman elites, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and like ultimately like one from whom men hid their face. He's despised and we did not esteem him. Uh I can remember when The Passion of the Christ came out. It was very controversial because of the rated R. It was very violent. And I was surprised by how many Christians were, su- I was surprised, Caleb, by how many Christians were shocked by how violent the events leading up to and the crucifixion itself were. I just, it blew my mind that people had sanitized it so much they uh, were shocked by that. And I thought it, th- even that film didn't do it justice. And here's what it says. Ultimately, people are not willing to look at it and I remember Jamie, Kristen, Debbie, and I went and and saw that film um, down the road here. And I remember Kristen kind of hiding her face. And no offense on her; she's part of the fulfillment of this verse in verse three. It's that bad. So the Savior will suffer unbelievable disrespect and rejection. Have you ever suffered? Has anybody ever disrespected you? This probably has never happened to you. You ever been disrespected? You ever been rejected? Jesus knows how you feel. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize, because he's been there, too. And any rejection of him is totally illegitimate. A lot of times I cause my own problems in those areas. All right, let's look at the second part of the meat in the middle. The Savior will suffer in the place of, as a substitute for, sinful people, and we all qualify. Surely, he's not just suffering as a victorious uh, mer- meritorious martyr for some great cause. He's suffering as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice for Jenny Heath's sins and Donald Trump's sins and Adolf Hitler's sins and Joseph Stalin's sins and Tom Robertson's sins and Billy Graham's sins and even the Pope's sins. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Now, we have anybody here who's read First Peter a lot lately. That kind of sounds like he bore our sins in his body on the cross. Uh, Peter had read this passage, trust me. Surely our griefs he bore, our sorrows he carried. The idea is that our sins are imputed to Christ and judged on the cross so that when the sinner trusts him, that payment applies to them and his righteousness is implied, imputed to you. So, Kirk, it's not just that Jesus washes the dead away, You know, if I owe somebody a $1,000 or a $1,000,000 and they cancel the debt, that's great. I don't owe them anything, but I don't have any assets at that point. This isn't just Jesus wipes your sin debt away. He does that, and then he gives you his righteousness as your legal standing before God. Having a righteousness not on my own, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus, Paul says in Philippians 3. So he's suffering not for something he did wrong, but for all of our sins he carries our sorrows, yet we, the human race at large, especially the, the uh, eyewitnesses and the people who were behind the mechanism to make the crucifixion happen, estreamed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. I mean, what did the Jewish uh, Sanhedrin say that made them want to crucify Jesus Christ? They said he was a satanically possessed false prophet. Okay, I don't think all those cats actually believed that, but that was the party line in most of Judaism would have believed the party line. So when he says, we, he's saying the Jewish people. The Jewish people didn't crucify Jesus. The Roman people crucified Jesus. Jews stoned people to death under the law. They passed him over to, they set him up. The Jewish leaders set Jesus up, but it's the Romans, the Gentiles, that crucified him. So don't buy this anti-Semitism based on the fact that Jews are Christ killers. It was the Gentiles, and he's there for all of us. There's no reason for anti-Semitism there. But yet we ourselves, the Jewish people, the vast majority of Jews at the time, thought he was a demon-possessed false prophet or maybe some kind of a bad guy, otherwise the religious leaders wouldn't have had him so much. But he was pierced through for our transgression. That's interesting, the word pierced there makes us think of a crucifixion. Crucifixion wasn't invented until about 500 years after Isaiah wrote this uh, in about 200 B.C., uh, It was invented in Egypt and then was perfected by the Romans. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening, the discipline, the punishment for our well-being fell on him. He bore our sins in his body on the cross, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. That's why we owe God a moral debt we can't pay. Each of us has turned to his own way, no matter how bad you are, you can be forgiven because Christ has paid for your sins. No matter how good you are, you can't save yourself. You need him because he died for your sins. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord, God the Father, has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That's what the gospel is. That's what people need to hear. They don't need to hear about Dallas Theological Seminary or Tanglewood Bible Fellowship or even the Evangelical Alliance Mission they need to hear about the Savior who loves them despite their sins, but loves them too much to try to overlook it, who pays for their sin, who victoriously rises from the dead and gives eternal life to everyone who will trust him for it. Uh, the Savior will suffer in the place of as a substitute for sinners. Uh, I love the Second Corinthians 5 passage. He who knew no sin, Jesus, who, who did not, express or commit any sin. He who knew no sin experientially was made to be a sin offering for us on the cross that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Uh, he's the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but those of the whole world. He himself says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Boom. Incredible stuff here. Uh, I would dare to say that passages not just in Romans or Galatians or John, but in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, Sonia, are telling you that God's Savior pays the entire sin debt. Uh, it is finished. You guys know this. Three words in English, one word in the original Greek text New Testament. Tetelestai means paid in full. Mission accomplished. It's not just it is finished. That could be a whimper of resignation and defeat. That's a declaration of victory. Man, I almost had a heart attack there. I looked at the wrong thing. It said 1215. Boy, I tell you, that would have been bad. Uh, Yeah, Jesus paid it all. So if Jesus paid it all, what do we have to pay? But to the one who does not work, Romans 4, 5, but to the one who does not work, but who believes in Christ, who justifies the ungodly, that ungodly person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. So do Muslims in the Middle East have to get baptized before they can get saved? Walk an aisle, sign a card, make promises? No, not at all. Jesus paid it all. He does the work. We receive it through faith. To the one who does not work, but who believes in him and justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. Uh, let's move to the next part of the meat in the middle. Look at verses 7 through 9. The Savior will suffer as the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. We always talked always talked about the ceremonial aspects of the law and the civil criminal aspects of the law don't apply to us. The moral stipulations are gnomic, timeless. But look what he says here in verse 7 through 9. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, but he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter. Uh, you know, we asked you a couple of weeks ago, Is the Kirk, trick question. Lion in the Bible, when it's used symbolically, is that a good symbol or a bad symbol? What do you think? Correct answer is it depends on context. Is Jesus the Lamb of the tribe of Judah? Is he physically a, a I mean a, a lion of the tribe of Judah? Did I say lamb? Yeah. Is Jesus the lamb of the tribe of Judah? Lion, yeah, that's what I meant. They both start with the same letter, so what do you expect? I'm old. Uh yeah. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Is that right? Is that a good symbol? Yeah, for sure. Is Satan like a roaring lion seeking someone that can de- he can devour? Yeah. So the symbol, the meaning of symbol depends on the context. Is lamb, that's why I'm, why I'm hung up on lamb. Is lamb, we're looking at Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament, which is a prophecy about Jesus. Uh, is, the, is lamb as a symbol a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I would say probably in verse 7 here, it's probably a good thing because it's referring to Jesus. Uh, Jesus would be oppressed and afflicted, But he would not open his mouth. He could snap his fingers and start creation over again, but he doesn't do it. He voluntarily submits to this thing. He's like a lamb led to the slaughter. He's like a sheep, silent before it's sheared, did not open his mouth. So there's a lamb is a positive symbol for Jesus, right? But what have we seen in the previous verse, Tommy? Uh, All we like sheep have gone astray. So that must mean Jesus has gone astray. No, it doesn't. That symbol is used in that particular way in verse 6, and that's it. And then we go to the next sentence, and we've got the symbol applied to Jesus in a different way. So be careful. you got to notice the nuances. Uh, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away to the cross. By kangaroo courts, really there were like six different hearings if you add them all up in front of Jews and Gentiles. Uh, but as for his generation, the vast majority of them, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people? who actually owed the sin debt themselves to God. Most people didn't see it then. They don't see it now. Verse 9 is really pretty cool. His death would be a sign with wicked men. When we say Jesus was crucified between two thieves, the Romans... Hey, Tammy, the Romans didn't crucify thieves. Okay, They crucified people they thought were in direct rebellion against Roman authority. And why would they crucify people in subjugated areas that they thought were rebellious against their authority, so that nobody else would want to be rebellious against Roman authority because that was a visible, public thing. This is what happens if you play with Rome, okay? So who's he being crucified between? Two thieves? He's being crucified between two terrorists, two anti-Roman zealots who probably killed a couple of Roman soldiers or a couple of Jewish tax collectors These are bad dudes Jesus is crucified between. So his 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 death, his execution is between two wicked men, guys who had broken all Ten Commandments. Yet he would be with a rich man, a powerful man, in his burial. How's that work? Now watch this. Joseph of Arimathea donated a brand new tomb for the corpse of Jesus, right? And Jesus was room temperature for three days before the resurrection. And the old joke goes this way. Uh, You know, he was. the Lord was buried just before sundown on Friday. And then the next day after Sabbath services, some of Joseph's friends, Joseph Arimathea's friends said, we can't believe, Trey, we can't believe that you would donate that expensive half a million dollar tomb to that despised Jewish itinerant preacher. And Joseph Arimathea said, ah, it's no big deal. He's only going to use it for three days. I love that joke. They've heard it 110 times, so. And I don't tell it that good either. I get lambs and lions confused, you know, that kind of thing. So his death would be a sign with wicked men, with really bad dudes on either side of him. even though one came to faith. Now, you know, the guy that comes to faith, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He didn't stop smoking. I'm not sure he smoked. He didn't stop, stop chewing tobacco. He didn't stop rooting for OU. He didn't, stop, he didn't give up any of his bad habits. He just said, I'm I'm a sinner, I'm guilty, I deserve it, I can't fix it, but I think you can and I want you to. And he's not a theologian, but he knows something's going on there that is supernatural and transcendent. He says, Uh remember when you come in your kingdom, and what does Jesus say? Man, I wish you talked to me last week, because you got to do stuff to pre qualify for this. What does he say? What does Jesus say? Do you believe in deathbed conversions? Jesus did. He's not in his bed. He's in a cross, but he's dying a few seconds away maybe from death. And Jesus says, you got it. That's active, receptive trust. A little child can do that. Let's not make the fruit of salvation part of the root because it really confuses people. Let's look at the last part of the meat in the middle here, verses 10 and 11. The Savior will suffer such that he will be the issue and the issuer of eternal life. But the Lord, God the Father, was pleased, not happy, but judicially satisfied. The death of Christ covers all the moral, spiritual, metaphysical debt we owe God the Father as depraved sinners. But the Lord, God the Father, was pleased, was judicially satisfied to crush him, putting him to death as a propitiation, a satisfaction of righteous wrath by sacrifice, since he would render himself as a guilt offering. And yet... After his sacrificial death, he, God the Father, will see his offspring again. He'll see his son again, because after his death, God the Father will prolong his days. Can you say the word literal bodily supernatural resurrection? See, we believe that Jesus died for our sins as our substitute and paid our sin debt, but we also believe that his resurrection, which was not just a spiritual, somebody thought they saw the spirit of Jesus floating around somewhere, but the body was supernaturally reunited with the Spirit, and he has a resurrection body like the one we're going to get at the rapture. And without a resurrection, you don't have salvation, because a dead Savior is not going to get you from Oklahoma to heaven. But the resurrected one is the only one who can, and he can every single time anyone trusts him for it. So God the Father's, uh, uh, our, say our debt to God is totally... Uh, taken care of. The Lord is pleased, judicially satisfied in what Christ did for us on the cross since he'd run himself up as a guilt offering. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us, and yet after his death, God the Father and all of us will see his son again because he's going to prolong his day supernaturally on Easter Sunday, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Now we know that, by the way, because the top bun, fifty. Chapter fifty two thirteen says, Behold, my servant will prosper, he'll be high and lifted up. So we know he's gonna have supernatural life after death to solve that after we're told he's gonna die, but this just reemphasizes that. Uh he will see his offspring, he'll prolong his days, and the good pleasure of God will prosper in his hand as a result of the anguish of the Savior's life and soul and experience. He, God the Father, will see it and be satisfied. The technical term is propitiation there. By his knowledge, by what we call the saving knowledge of Christ, faith alone in Christ alone, my servant will justify the many and all who believe as he bore their iniquities. He's the Savior. Uh, you know, according to uh, Romans 4, 5, our works have nothing to do with our eternal life. It's all about the work of Christ for us. But when we trust Christ for eternal life... We don't just get a get-out-of-hell-free card. We get a whole new capacity to serve God, but all the good stuff that we quit and we start doing and we start uh, enjoying and, and, and singing about, that's all the effect of salvation. It's not the cause. We talked Wednesday night about uh, the controversy in the early church. Do Gentiles have to become Jews before they can become Christians? That made sense to them at the time, but the apostles blew it out of the water. So, you know, I like this diagram. Anthony kind of cleaned it up for me and made it look a little a lot fancier than I've had it with my schematic. But you have faith in works meeting right at the tangent. You don't want to artificially separate them or overlap them. Today you hear a lot of gospel preaching that overlaps the two. And when you do that, some people will trust Christ anyway, and other people will just do whatever, jump through whatever hoop you're saying, and they don't get the fact that Christ paid the debt. They just think he gave them a chance to jump through hoops. So you want to be very careful about that. What does Ephesians 2.8.9 say? For by grace means unmerited favor. You can't earn it or deserve it. Are you saved through faith? Faith is active, receptive trust. Okay? Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He, he accepted that, so let's use that as an example. Right? So it's a rational act, but it's not a meritorious work. For by grace, you don't earn it, deserve it, can't unearn it, can't undeserve it. Are you saved through faith? and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Salvation is a gift, not of works, so there's nothing for Sharon to brag about before, during or after she comes to faith. She has a lot of good good works in her life. I mean, being you know, a world-class wife for David is going to I mean you're going to get like two crowns and a letter jacket for that alone, okay? Plus putting up with your pastor, you know? So you're going to get another letter jacket for that. But all that stuff is just God working in and through you. So we're excited about the way God's working in Kayla's life. But ultimately, she's going to say, it's really just God working through me. She's she gets, she gets, actually, he's like the astronaut on the top of the rocket that actually gets to get in the space capsule and go to the moon or go to the Skylab or whatever. It's all the thousands of other people that support it and make it happen. But ultimately, it's God doing the works, right? So here's the gospel. Here's the good news that transcends colors, countries, and cultures. Because Christ died for our sins just like Isaiah says in de- detail. You don't need Romans. You got Isaiah 53. That's all you need, Kurt. Ask the, ask the e- Ethiopian eunuch who's reading that when he asked, you know, the guy to help him understand it. Yeah, so he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. And he's not dead anymore. Uh, a dead savior is not going to get you from Oklahoma to heaven. And by the way, Kirk, Oklahoma is closer to heaven than Nebraska. Just so you'll know. You know that, right? Stillwater is probably the closest point, but uh, but that's the core message, and that's what unites Christians and has and will for all eternity. So you know, if you've not from the depth of your heart trusted Jesus Christ, this is the uh, the moment you can do that. We're not going to sing just as I am multiple times. We'd rather have a spiritual dynamics and maybe psychological dynamics in play. But if you've not trusted Christ, you can throw yourself in the mercy of the court. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I break my own standards, much less yours. And I'm going to stop trying to fix it by being religious, but I'm going to trust that Jesus died for me and paid for my sins, and I receive him as my Savior. And then you say, Lord, thank you. I love you. Uh, tell, me, tell me how high to jump, and I'll do it. But that's all the effect, not the cause, okay? So we said we had a top bun and a bottom bun. We looked at the meat in the middle of the hamburger structure. Let's look at the the bottom bun, which is really the last verse here. And it's in parallel to, or parallel with, I should say, but emphasize a different aspect of what's going on here. We saw in the top bun that the Savior Jesus would ultimately be exalted supremely, but only after he suffers ultimately unique humiliation, including the cross. Now we're going to see in this last verse, the Savior will ultimately be exalted supremely, but it only happens after he's resurrected from the dead. It's kind of summarizing everything here. Therefore, in light of all this good stuff he's told us in this prophecy, uh, God the Father being quoted here in an oracle, I will allot him a portion with the great as the greatest of the great. And he'll divide the booty among the strong. In the Hebrew, he's not... He's going to be one of the guys that gets it. He's going to be the one who passes it out, the, the rewards to believers who have been faithful. Uh, because he poured himself out to death, and not just a, mart- a, martyr's, a martyr's death, but a substitutionary, atoning, sacrificial, saving death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many, and many can mean all. You know, it's a great many. And interceded for transgressors. So when did when did Jesus pray for transgressors killing him? Do you remember? Is there anything like that in the Bible? What does he say? He says, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." And I just my own feeling on that is that's got to be a special category of sin. You know, the unpardonable sin is refusing to receive Jesus by just directly and deliberately renouncing who he is, which you'll see in Mark three. Uh, there's got to be a special category of sin. Crucifying the Creator—that's a special category of sin that demands just thunderbolts, lightning bolts, immediately. And I think that was like one nanosecond away. And he says, "Father, let's not—don't do that." <laughs> you know, uh, I, uh, he, you, you said before the mission that uh, you would you would do that for just the uh, execution party, but let's not do that. He's showing super grace there. Now, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the background of this text based on some data. Uh, called the Dead Sea Scrolls, but just for lack of time, I'm just going to kind of uh, conclude here. You know, uh, I've said that we've got a top bun, bottom bun, and then the meat in the middle. And truth one, truth two, truth three, truth four. So, Nancy, I'm saying those truths in the middle, those four, are unbelievable. They're all unbelievable, you know, to a secular, skeptical person. The Savior's going to suffer unbelievable disrespect and rejection. Why would the God-given Savior be rejected by so many people? That doesn't sound right. Uh, the Savior will suffer in the place as a substitute for sinners. But Buddha didn't do that. Joseph Smith didn't do that. None of the religious leaders done that. I don't believe that. Uh, the Savior will suffer as a fulfillment of Old Testament sacrificial system. Sacrificial system, that was, was kind of old-fashioned and barbaric. I don't really believe that stuff. The Savior will suffer such that he'll be the issue. He'll be the way, the truth, and the life. That sounds very inclusive. Uh, you know, exclusive, I should say, right? Not inclusive enough. I don't like that. Those are all pretty unbelievable things. That basically, when you trust Christ, you're believing, by definition. Uh, some of the skeptics out there talk about the the gospel of grace. They call it uh, easy believism. I don't think it's all that easy to believe this stuff, actually. You know what I mean? Uh, Little children can do it, but it's not easy to believe that Jesus is the only issue and the only way to eternal life. Sometimes people look at our cross and our arrow there, and they think the arrow means he's the only way, which he is. But I'm the one who came up with that symbol, and symbols like lambs or lions mean what the uh, originator means. That cross, that arrow for me is the resurrection, right? The death and the resurrection. If you don't have a resurrected Savior, He's not. it's just a philosophy of life. But this idea that this is easy to believe this stuff, I just I just don't buy it, right? And so beware of that, because so these are unbelievable things we're talking about, uh, absolutely. But uh, there's the bottom line. Are you going to trust in your works to save yourself? Or are you going to believe that Jesus did some of the work and you have to do the rest? Or are you going to dare to believe the unbelievable that Jesus paid it all? Everything necessary to get you from earth to heaven, Jesus has already done, And you receive it in him through faith. And then having done that, of course you want to live your life for him. You've always got a motivation, whether anybody's looking or not. But uh, that's the thing. And when people say, well, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke maybe believe that stuff, but nobody else really did. Talk about Isaiah 53, because this thing reads like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, doesn't it? I mean, it really does. And it's written about 680 B.C., long, long before the events of the life of Christ. Okay? So let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us to be amazed at the power of fulfilled Bible prophecy, even as we look forward to yet unfulfilled Bible prophecy. And help us as we read a passage like this to be overwhelmed at the amazing person and work of the Savior, the the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. And if there's anyone here this morning who's not from the depth of their heart said, Lord Jesus, I need a Savior. I'm going to dare to believe the unbelievable that you died to pay for my sin debt completely. And I receive you, and I receive that. And I believe you rose from the dead, and I believe that, and I receive that. And now I want to love you and and, and live for you because of all you've done for me. I pray that your Holy Spirit would draw them to yourself. For most of us who have trusted Christ, help us never to get over... Uh, how just how wonderful the the basic truths of the gospel are, even when we're looking at first Peter, second Peter, the rapture uh you know some specific details of scripture uh the Septuagint, uh or uh the Vulgate or whatever we're talking about from week to week, help us never to get very far for our motivation and for our dedication from the cross of Jesus Christ and help. Uh, especially those in this room today who are dealing with a lot of stress, with some unique sufferings, uh, unique mourning and grieving. Help them to put whatever they're dealing with against the background of the cross and the resurrection. And I know that will help shrink it down so we can doubt our doubts and tie a knot at the end of our rope and hold on in faith. Uh, We pray that uh, you'd be glorified as we apply the implications and truths of this passage. Please empower us to do that. In Christ's name we pray, amen.